Welcome nerds. It's time to debrief you on the world of pop culture. Loading up rockabilly track. Now erasing Christian and Damon's names from the naughty list. Preparing updates on movies, TV, wrestling and more. ANS 5.0 activates in 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Hopefully everyone's enjoying themselves. Uh, this week, because of our schedules, we're going to be bringing you a very special episode of A&S Rewind. That's right. We Frankensigned our Horror Month countdowns to give you our favorite horror films of the past five decades. Do you know, really bring the family together. I mean, just because it's Christmas doesn't mean we can't still have a bloody good time. Of course, we will be back next week with our regularly scheduled episode. But until then, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And now The Amazing Nerd Show presents Horror Through the Decades. Our countdowns of the best horror films from each decade. First up, the 1970s. So while I can't speak for Christian, for me the 70s by far is my favorite decade when it comes to horror. And that's because the genre as a whole was experiencing a renaissance that really laid the foundation for decades to come by producing classic films that are still to this day considered the high watermark for horror. During this period, restrictions on standards in cinema had started to loosen, allowing artists to stretch boundaries like never before. The nation was in turmoil, crime was escalating, Vietnam and Watergate loomed like a dark cloud, and all this reflected in many ways in the horror films hitting the theaters. A lot of the scares were no longer coming from mad scientists in laboratories or from coffins in Transylvania. No, the horror became more grounded and real, with us and our neighbors becoming the monsters lurking in the shadows. It's really all these elements along with a crop of legendary filmmakers that make the 70s one of the most influential decades in horror cinema history. Quickly, before we get started, I got some honorable mentions. Uh, these are honestly films that probably would make my top five any other decade. Uh, but anyway, honorable mentions to Black Christmas, Phantasm, Suspiria, and Alien. I mean, that list alone should show you just how jam-packed this decade really is. Christian, any honorable mentions? For me, it's going to be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And honestly, yeah, I forgot just how many like great horror films came out in the 70s. And now Amazing Nerd Show's top five horror films of the 1970s. Number five, Dawn of the Dead. When there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk here. So George Romero's zombie epic is laced with as much social commentary as it is with gore. And dear lord, thanks to Tom Savini's game-changing effects, there's plenty of gore to go around. Dawn was a wicked look at where we were at as a society at the time, and from the opening scene in the projects to the political commentators pushing their agendas at the brink of apocalypse, the film somehow feels even more relevant today. And just like he did with Night of the Living Dead, Romero proved that horror can be so much more than just cheap scares, and he did this all the while redefining the genre, because after Dawn, horror was never truly the same. Number five, Carrie. Curse. Man, a curse was a curse of blood. You should have told me, Mama. You should have told me. Oh, Lord. Help the silly woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. 
She no. may have been tempted by the Antichrist. She may have coaxed committed the sin of lustful thoughts. No, Ma. Oh, don't no. lie to me, Carrietta. Don't you know by now I can see inside you? I can see the sin as surely as God can. No, you're we'll me. pray. No. We'll pray, no. woman. No. Pray no. for lustful sins. Brian De Palma took a stab at Stephen King's tale of adolescence turned horror and created a 70s classic. From the cinematography to the performances, each scene is rife with, you know, what should be the teenage fantasy, but each moment ends tragically as Carrie yearns for a normal, happy life, only to, you know, really face cruelty from home and school life. Scenes start at these, you know, high fantasy-like shots and fall into these dizzying nightmares that are really what made this film such a memorable experience. Sissy Spasic um, becoming a telekinetic devil is just as horrifying to watch as it is a cheerable moment and was an easy choice for my top five. Number four, Jaws. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. So listen, everyone has a right to their own opinion. But one fact in my mind that's just undebatable is Jaws is a fucking horror film. I mean, it has everything you could want out of a monster flick. An unstoppable terrifying creature, a thick sense of dread, enough suspense to choke on, and a legendary white-knuckling score. Then you throw in Spielberg's perfect pacing and ingenuity, and you've got movie magic. I mean, there's a reason why a whole nation was scared to go to the beach after watching what's considered the first real summer blockbuster, and that's because Jaws is one of the greatest horror films ever made. Number four, the Amityville Horror. A descent into madness that nearly consumes the Lutz family and made a certain window pattern terrify generations. The Amityville Horror stands as one of my favorite horror flicks. Um, the possessed house theme is felt in every moment as a hateful energy produces randomly violent moments that terrify the family. And then we have James Brolin's performance where we see his character get torn apart by insanity. It's a great tense ride as the family family is forced to accept the danger of their home. It also has ties to a possible real life story, which scared me even more as a kid thinking about it, you know, really got my imagination going. So if by some chance you haven't heard of it, give Amityville a chance. Number three, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
So in the early 70s, what Toby Hooper delivered with Texas Chainsaw Massacre is pretty much the impetus for modern day horror. I mean, its influence on the genre is simply unquantifiable, and it's still being felt today. And while Leatherface and family are some of the most depraved and twisted villains ever put on film, it's Hooper's guerrilla-style filmmaking that adds a strange sense of realism and really takes the film from morbid entertainment to a DNA-altering experience. Fan of the genre or not, everyone remembers the first time they saw Leatherface do his chainsaw dance on that dusty Texas road. And it's really moments like that etched on our collective psyches that make Texas Chainsaw Massacre a horror classic. Number three, The Exorcist. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? They just haven't been able to make an exorcism story that tops the harrowing tale of The Exorcist. By the time I had seen the movie, it had been spoofed a hundred times over, but none of that was capable of desensitizing or preparing me for the tale of corruption and evil that Pazuzu's hold over Reagan was. And while the spectacle of the demon is the big draw here, the story of Father Karras brings a ton of depth to the film's final moments that leaves a truly lasting impression. Number two. Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. John Carpenter's Halloween is an absolute masterpiece, bar none. And that's because what he delivers us with this film is just the ultimate personification of pure evil in the form of the shape, who, with no rhyme or reason, blending in the shadows, is stalking his next victim. And that's what makes Michael Myers so different and effective. He's more of a force of nature than a man. I mean, to the point that his own doctor, who's supposed to be trying to help and heal him, instead chooses to hunt him down, knowing what's at stake. Filled with just some brilliant, innovative camera work and one of the greatest film scores ever composed, it's ingrained in both the season and the pop culture lexicon like only few films ever achieved. I mean, so much so that to this day, whenever I hear the film's classic theme, I swear I can smell the jack-o'-lanterns on a cold autumn night, just like I did when I first saw the movie decades ago. Number two, Alien. Am I, am I Claire Lambert? I want to get the hell out of here. Oh, God. It's moving right towards you. Uh. Move. Get out of there. Don't you move. Move, Doug. Move, Doug. Get A space-driven monster horror film with palpable atmosphere is exactly what Ridley Scott's Alien is. While Alien does a ton of cool shit and the Xenomorph is a beautifully disturbing monster, what this film does best is immerse you in the tight halls of the Nostromo as you watch Sigourney Weaver's absolutely iconic performance as Ripley. You feel the fact that she is alone out here in space with an alien going after her and the film is cut in a 
way that makes you feel like the xenomorph is right behind her at every corner, even if you barely see it. It's a truly unforgettable experience, which is something that I've always loved about Scott's work. Whether I like the film or not, the world is always so believable and immersive and you always leave feeling like you've been teleported away somewhere. And now Damon's number 170s horror film, The Exorcist. When I first saw this film, at the ripe young age of 11, it rocked me to my core. Even though I didn't grow up in a religious household, it still felt like every frame of this film was sacrilegious, like Pazuzu was going to somehow possess me through my VCR. I mean, I was a Fangoria kid in the late 80s, and I really did consider myself a pretty seasoned gorehound at the time, but watching Reagan's transformation from looking like one of my classmates to the devil incarnate was just too much to bear witness. And mind you, at this point in my young life, I was still only really experiencing the film on a rudimentary level. It was only over time that I truly started to appreciate Freakin' and Blatty's classic tale of faith, spirituality, and sacrifice. It's because of those themes, and of course their fearless determination to show us the most twisted corruption of innocence ever captured on film, uh, that really elevates The Exorcist above other movies. So much so that it's really still the high bar today. I mean, every five years or so, some marketing twit decides to make the cardinal sin of claiming a new genre film is as scary as The Exorcist. Spoiler, comparing your film to The Exorcist is the ultimate kiss of death, so don't do it. But it really does go to show you that almost 50 years later, people are still evoking its name as one of the scariest films of all time. And damn it, rightfully so, because it is. And that's why The Exorcist easily tops my list as my favorite horror film of the 1970s. And for Christian's number 170s horror flick, Halloween. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. At this point, it almost feels like cheating to put Halloween at number one, but I can't help but love slasher villains, and Michael Myers' presentation in Halloween makes for one of the most haunting and terrifying of them all. Beyond the natural association with Halloween and the pure nostalgia, is a man driven to kill you, and one that simply can't be stopped. He's around the corner, just out of sight, and he will get you one way or another. And with Dr. Loomis telling the audience what we're witnessing is the personification of evil, Michael ascends being just a man, as Damon said before. 1978's Halloween is a staple to the horror genre and will be watched till the end of time. And you should probably be watching it this horror month. Next, the 1980s. Damon, what made the 80s such an iconic era for horror fans? Well, to plagiarize one of the decade's greatest artists, Molly Crew, the 80s was a decade of decadence. We as a society basked in overindulgence. Materialism and yuppies were on the rise, and style over substance was the order of the day. Clothes got brighter, music and cars got faster, and horror got a whole lot bloodier. 
Slasher films swept the nation as horror entered a boom period, and movie studios raced to milk their new deranged cash cow. Audiences were treated to new terrifying sights once never imagined possible, with practical effects taking things to the next level. And with the genre coming down with a bad case of sucolitis, the knife-wielding maniacs who populated these films became household names, and the special effects wizards who brought them to life became rock stars to horror fans worldwide. But sadly, this period was never meant to last, as the MPAA started to bend its knee to angry parent and religious groups, leaving some of our favorite movie monsters toothless, and consequently movie studios searching for the next fad to capitalize on. Fortunately for us, though, that wasn't before the decade could deliver us some of the most enduring horror icons of films since the classic Universal monsters dominated the silver screen. Alright, so before we get started, some honorable mentions. Uh, now, this was the decade that I grew up in and really fell in love with horror, so it was really difficult to whittle things down to just a top five. Uh, but anyway, Audible mentions uh, Hellraiser, An American Werewolf in London, Friday 13th Part 6, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Halloween 2 and 4, I told you there was a lot of sequels, um, and Evil Dead 2. God, I love the 80s. Uh, Christian, any honorable mentions, man? I'm not going to list off 100 sequels because, yes, the 80s are filled with sequels, as Damon just you know, clearly showed. But for my honorable mentions, I'll say Christine, um, Scanners, Predator, and Aliens. Oh, also Beetlejuice and Lost Boys, of course. And now for the Amazing Nerd Show's top five horror films of the 1980s. Starting with Damon's number five, The Evil Dead. It's a seven. Queen of Spades. Four of Hearts. Eight of Spades. Two of Spades. Jack of Diamonds. Jack of Clubs. Why have you disturbed our sleep? Awakened us from our ancient slumber. You will die! So, while I love Evil Dead 2, it's the original that scarred me as a child, which of course makes it my favorite. And that's because Sam Raimi's debut feature film is simply unapologetic. It doesn't let us off the hook with sight gags and slapstick like the sequel does. Raimi's film is simply relentless, putting the great Bruce Campbell through the ringer. I mean, once Cheryl starts to levitate during the iconic card scene, you're not allowed to come up for air until the film ends. Innovative and a template for all Cabin in the Wood films to come, Evil Dead is a blood-soaked fever dream that announced the arrival of one of the genre's most influential artists for years to come. Christian's number five, Child's Play. I said talk to me, damn it, or else I'm gonna throw you in the fire! You stupid bitch, you filthy slut! Did you fuck with me? One of the first real horror villains I can recall getting into was none other than the killer doll Chucky. And while the absurdity of the murderer turned doll was what hooked me to the numerous sequels, growing up I realized none of them really were quite as good as the original that had more suspense towards the true nature of this you know, monstrous plastic being which overall made it a much more frightening concept in comparison to the kill fest that the rest of the films you know, turned out to be. So Child's Play, the original, like many 80s horror films, was the birth of an icon, which you've definitely should have seen by now. Damon's number four, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Hey Ted, where's, where's that, uh, that corkscrew? 
wine bottle. Ted. So in my mind, the final chapter is the high point of the franchise, with just a perfect storm of elements helping make it not only the best Friday the 13th, but one of the best slasher films ever made. I mean, you got a script with characters you actually care about, so when they meet their demise, it actually matters. Uh, you got great stand-up performances by Crispin Glover and a young Corey Feldman, and don't forget Ted White as Jason, who added a real sense of physicality and menace to the role. And then to top things off, you have the return of Tom Savini, working his magic to make every death memorable. Hell, I mean, it doesn't even matter that the title's a bold-faced lie and we would go on to have eight more fucking sequels. I mean, that's all kind of part of its charm, honestly. So anyway, listen, at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is if someone wants to experience Friday the 13th or slasher films for that matter for the first time, it would have to be the final chapter that I point them to. Christian's number four, Friday the 13th part six, Jason no lives. No way, you gotta listen to me. Jason's coming here, he's after me. I'm trying to destroy him, but I'm fucked up. You got that right, punk. You listen to me. I'm sorry about what happened to you and your folks years ago, but no one in Forest Green wants to be reminded of what that maniac did here. That's why we changed the name. People want to forget this was Crystal Lake, and they don't need some kid stirring up Jason shit again. Now, you just lie down and get some rest. In the morning, I'll call that clinic. No, look, if you just go to the cemetery, you'll see I'm not lying. Either you get some sleep, or I'm going to come in there and put you out. You're going to be sorry you didn't listen to me. You're going to be sorry if you don't shut up. While I agree with Damon that the final chapter is a must watch and definitely almost made my list, it would be part six that left me, you know, with the most memorable Jason Voorhees experience because that's exactly what it is. Director Tom McLaughlin and company, you know, deliver on what you came to see in this slasher flick. And that's Jason just absolutely fucking up his victims. And while you won't, you know, ever find yourself caring about, you know, the characters too much, you will find yourself having a ton of fun watching them get torn apart. This film is not at all like the serious haunts that some on my list later on will be, but this is just one that you put on with your friends and enjoy the murder fest that is Jason Voorhees. Damon's number three, The Thing. This is pure nonsense. Doesn't prove a thing. I thought you'd feel that way, Gary. You were the only one that could have got to that blood. We'll do you last. <laughs> So John Carpenter's The Thing is a masterclass in suspense and tension. What he manages to deliver with this remake of the 1950s thriller is the physical manifestation of our own paranoia, all of course in the form of the most terrifying creature effects ever captured on film. I mean, the first time I watched this movie was through my fingers because I just wasn't prepared for what I was witnessing and damn it, Rob Bodden's effects still hold up decades later. But what also makes this film a true classic is the nightmare scenario of being trapped in this icy prison of isolation with a monster that's wearing a friendly face. 
the film taps into a nerve and feeling we can all relate to in a way because we've all suffered that anxiety of mistrust. And it's really that vibe and feeling that stays with us for the course of the entire film till one of the bleakest endings in cinema history. Christian's number three, Nightmare on Elm Street. always be a bigger Jason fan than Freddy, I can't deny the ingenuity of this film and how it became an absolute staple that remains to this day. Wes Craven's Freddy attacks you in your dreams, which opened up a franchise with limitless potential, and at its center was a bona fide star in Robert England, who carried an iconic performance for years to come. And Heather Lagenkamp um, definitely gave Jamie Lee Curtis a run for her money by becoming one of the most badass final girls in horror history. Damon's number two, The Shining. Come and play with us, Danny. Forever. And ever. And ever. Unlike other horror films from the decade, The Shining isn't about jump scares, gore, or a body count which might be one of the reasons I always think of it as a 70s film, even though it was released in early 1980. Um, the Shining is more about atmosphere and suspense. From Kubrick's brilliant camera work to the haunting score and Nicholson's manic performance, as an audience member, you really feel like you're trapped inside Jack Torrance's mind as he loses grip on reality. And I think that's partially due to Kubrick's attention to detail and his gorgeous filmmaking style. I mean, it's hard not to feel like you're being immersed by this film. The Overlook is so visually stunning that it seeps into your pores and just infects you the same way it does the Torrances. And that's what I think makes The Shining so unnerving, yet strangely rewatchable. It feels like a true haunted house experience just from the comfort of your own couch. Christian's number two, The Thing. Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. I enjoy the thing for a lot of the same reasons that I fell in love with Alien. Damon said it best that this film is a masterclass in telling a story about mistrust and having a setting that leaves you in just, you know, this isolated place, which somehow the cold of this blizzard environment made it even more claustrophobic at times than what I felt while watching, you know, Ripley go through the Nostromo. But ultimately what makes this much, you know, more terrifying is the body horror elements and the fact that the enemy is simply one of us. And dare I say, this is definitely my favorite performance from Kurt Russell. So I highly recommend The Thing. And now for Damon's number 180s horror film, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Please, God. This is God. 
So I don't think another film affected me as a kid the way Nightmare on Elm Street did when I first saw it in my friend's basement unbeknownst to my parents. I was a pretty logical 10-year-old at the time, so I always found that loophole after watching a horror film to kind of explain why I shouldn't be scared. Like, I took solace in knowing that most slashers of the day seem to only go after horny teenagers. But just knowing that Freddy, before he became a nightmare demon, was actually a child killer took that rationality away. Then you factor in that sleep wasn't even a safe haven, something that I used to pray for trembling my bed after one of these all-night horror marathons. Well, needless to say, I had a lot of sleepless nights after watching this movie. Wes Craven gave us one of the most creative, iconic movie monsters of all time with Freddy Krueger. Most slasher films were filled with hulking mass mutes stalking their victims. Not Freddy, though. No, he had personality and style and was quick with the one-liner. I mean, really, if you think about it, Freddy is as vile as it gets. He uses your greatest fears against you, all the while taunting you, and then he murders you in your sleep. It just doesn't get worse than that. What Craven crafted with Nightmare on Elm Street is a surreal experience to say the least. I mean, you're dealing with an unreliable narrator in the form of these sleep-deprived kids. So after Wes establishes these rules or lack of, you never really feel safe until the movie ends. If you think about it, the entire runtime of this film is filled with now legendary horror scenes, all because of the idea of Freddy operating on this nightmare scape that serves as this dark, twisted playground to torment his victims with. It's a stroke of genius that opens up so many possibilities. I mean, there's just no denying, in my mind, that Nightmare on Elm Street is a true hallmark moment for horror. Freddy Mania was a real thing in the 80s. He had merch on the shelves, which was just unheard of for a horror film at the time. I mean, he also had his own hotline and TV show for crying out loud. It just doesn't get bigger than that. But with that being said, even though Nightmare and its subsequent sequels feel like a time capsule for the decade in many ways, I still think the film is truly timeless, especially if you look at the legion of fans it makes when every new generation discovers it for the first time. And that's why Nightmare on Elm Street is my favorite horror film of the 80s. And now for Christian's number 180s horror flick, The Shining. Here's Johnny. To simply put it, The Shining is absolutely iconic. From even the quietest moments to Jack Nicholson's screams of insanity as he hunts down his family, you won't forget a moment of this film. Never has a carpet pattern been so terrifying, but thanks to Kubrick's well-captured Overlook Hotel with some of the best cinematography in horror, even the smallest details of this film can send shivers down your spine. And it's all, of course, amplified by the performances from this very limited cast of characters who portray the absolute dread of their situation as whatever force in this hotel has clearly chipped away at the sanity of Jack Torrance. It's definitely a film that surpasses just being a top horror film in my eyes. You know, with us both putting it on our lists, this is your call to watch The Shining this horror month. Next, the 1990s. Damon, since I was only an infant at this time, what made the 90s stand out for horror? Well, to say that the 90s was a transitional time period would be an understatement. 
the decade began with the end of the Cold War and would see the beginning of Operation Desert Storm. Grunge and hip-hop not only dominated the music charts, putting hair metal on the extinction list, but they also took over fashion. And technology began to advance at such a breakneck pace, with more and more homes than ever owning PCs, especially with the internet becoming a thing. Horror was also in a state of change, with some of the bigger franchises running on fumes. The genre as a whole was experiencing a bit of a hangover after the success of slasher films previously in the 80s, leaving studios searching for the next big thing. Slowly but surely though, other subgenres started to emerge and evolve, and variety seemed to be in vogue. The genre showed off its versatility and range at the box office, and arguably solidified itself as a true art form in critics' eyes even though some would scoff at the notion, choosing to call the more serious-toned award-nominated horror films thrillers. But horror fans saw right through that pretentious bullshit, because at the end of the day, no matter what the presentation, if the intent is to scare, then horror is the name of the genre. By the second half of the decade, slasher movies rose from their grave, like many of the mass killers that made them popular, refusing just to stay dead. This was all due to the success of Wes Craven's ultra-meta Scream. So of course, studios, just like they did previously in the 80s, raced to replicate it, pumping out dozens of copycat films filled with wise-cracking CW stars meeting their end at the point of a knife, all to mixed returns. Part of the issue was some of these movies were a little too polished and nerfed compared to their predecessors, many times choosing to trade in gore and scares for jokes and sarcasm, making them feel more like bad parody than horror. The decade would edge strong though, with films that would become trendsetters for the aughts, like the found footage phenomenon, Blair Witch Project, or Japan's Ringu that became the catalyst for the J-horror boom of the early 2000s, and in turn, for better or worse, the many American remakes. But we'll talk more about that next week. Alright, before we get started with the countdown, I've got some quick honorable mentions. Uh, first up, from Dust Till Dawn, uh, Jacob's Ladder, It, which actually almost made my list, but since it's really a miniseries, I felt like I'd be cheating. Uh, Sixth Sense, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, and The Blair Witch Project. Christian, do you have any honorable mentions this week? Uh, for my honorable mentions, I'll probably say From Dust Till Dawn, you know, Sleepy Hollow, and maybe even give The Crow, which is more of an action film, but fuck it, I'll say it, The Crow. And now Amazing Nerd Show's top five horror films of the 1990s. Damon's number five, Event Horizon. Event Horizon is just the perfect merger of sci-fi and horror, giving you that ghost story experience, albeit from the confines of a spaceship with the source of evil coming directly from the gates of hell. The reason this marriage works so well is it just doesn't get more isolated than space. The movie is genuinely terrifying and filled with shocking moments. Paul W.S. Anderson treats us to a tale of guilt and consequences as we watch the crew get judged for their past sins. I mean, I remember going to see this in the theaters and just half expecting it to be another alien copycat film, truly not prepared for the disturbing effed up shit I was about to witness. And that kind of lasting impression is why Event Horizon had to make my list. Christian's number five, seven. 
Put the gun I down. I saw you with the box. Who was in the box? Because I envy your normal life. Put the gun down, David. It seems that envy is my sin. Oh, what's in the box? Not until you give me the what's gun. What's in the fucking box? Give me the gun. He just told you. You lie! You're a fucking liar! Shut up! That's what he wants. He, wa he wants you to shoot him. No! As Damon said, the 90s became the era of, you know, the horror thrillers, and with crime dramas at their height, it's no wonder a film like Seven made its way to theaters. With a killer on the loose inspired to torture and murder each victim as, you know, a way to represent the seven deadly sins, we got the noir cop duo of uh, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. This film is one of David Fincher's best as we get drowned in the dread of these murders taking place one after another. You sit there and you just desperately want these cops to make it stop as the tension builds to one hell of a climactic finish that has been ingrained in cinema forever. Damon's number four, Scream. I'm telling you, the dad's a red herring. It's Billy. How do we know you're not the killer? Huh? Huh? Hi, Billy. Maybe your movie freaked mind lost its reality button. You ever think of that? You're absolutely right. I'm the first to admit it. If this were a scary movie, I'd be the prime suspect. That's right. And what would be your motive? It's the millennium. Motives are incidental. Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson single-handedly revitalized the slasher subgenre and some would argue horror as a whole in the mid-90s. They reminded audiences why they actually fell in love with these horror movies in the first place. It's cathartic escapism. So they took the typical slasher film premise and they injected it with a level of self-awareness that would celebrate horror and the audience's fandom, all the while not insulting their intelligence. Screen felt fresh and fun and really brought back that communal experience in theaters with audiences screaming and laughing together in a way they hadn't in years. And it was done simply by giving us fully formed characters to cheer for and a killer in Ghostface who felt unpredictable because they preyed on our pre-existing horror knowledge by using our expectations against us. With this meta approach, Craven and Williamson showed us, regardless of built-in cliches, it was still possible to take the genre seriously and make it frightening again. Christian's number four, Silence of the Lambs. <gasps> oh, I go home, please. He places the lotion in the basket. <laughs> I want to see my mommy. <laughs> please, no. I want to see my mommy. One of, if not the most quoted film of my childhood, Silence of the Lambs, dark true crime horror leaves a lasting impression on all generations. I mean, who hasn't done Buffalo Bill's Dance in the Mirror at least once, right? All kidding aside, Jonathan Dem uh, and company take you on a psychological hell ride as you yourself get toyed with by the charming performance of Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. His scenes alone with Jodie Foster's you know, Clarice made the film iconic, and while there have been many imitations of the pairing of Hannibal and Sterling, none quite compare to this one. It's a 90s flick with true lasting power. Damon's number three. The Exorcist 3. For example, a decapitated head can continue to see for approximately 20 seconds. So when I have one that's cocking, I 
always hold it up so that it can see its body. It's a little extra I throw in for no added charge. <laughs> I must admit it makes me chuckle every time. So after Exorcist 2 was such a disaster, it's hard to blame people for not checking out a third installment. But what William Blatty, who actually wrote the original Exorcist, delivered with this film is a supernatural murder mystery that permeates a level of dread that only few films have ever reached. In this dark and twisted story, we watch Detective Kinderman from the first film, now played by the great George C. Scott, try to unravel the riddle of the Gemini Killer, who seems somehow to be back from the dead. Filled with surreal dreamlike sequences and wicked ghastly visuals, Blatty gives us another story about lost faith as we watch Kinderman struggle with the meaning of it all in this unforgiving cruel world. With Blatty at the helm, this is very much a writer's film. With sharp-witted dialogue driving every scene, only taking a back seat at time to some expertly crafted moments of suspense. The result at the end of the day is a film that many consider one of the best underappreciated horror sequels of all time. Christian's number three, Army of Darkness. Sure, I could have stayed in the past. Could have even been king. But in my own way, I am king. Hail to the king, baby. If you listen to the show, you know I'm a fan of the absurd from time to time. And that's one way to, you know, describe the third installment of the Evil Dead franchise, Army of Darkness. If Evil Dead 2 wasn't balls to the wall enough for you, Wait till Ash finds himself in the Middle Ages fighting deadites. I mean, I talked about you know Silence of the Lamb being quotable, but I think I say uh, this is my boomstick at least once a week. It's not a film to take super serious, and I'm sure as fuck you know wouldn't call it a scary film. But man, is Army of Darkness a good time with plenty of practical effects gags and horrific humor to make it a horror month staple. Damon's number two, Silence of the Lambs. His real name is Benjamin Raspell, a former patient of mine whose romantic attachments ran to, shall we say, the exotic. I did not kill him, I assure you, merely tucked him away very much as I found him after he'd missed three appointments. But if you didn't kill him, then who did, sir? Who can say? Best thing for him, really. His therapy was going nowhere. There's only a few films that have ever really left their mark on pop culture like Silence of the Lambs. It's the kind of movie that even if you haven't seen it, you could probably quote a line or, you know, recognize its characters. This unnerving psychological horror film transcends the typical serial killer tale and really helped reshape the way people view the genre. Anthony Hopkins, with a career-defining performance as Hannibal Lecter, gives us one of the most charismatic horror villains ever put on screen. To the point, because of his penchant of eating the rude, he becomes a bit of an anti-hero, even as he manipulates and toys with the stoic detective Clarice Starling, played by the incomparable Jodie Foster. It's their chemistry that drives the film as they play a game of mental chess for Starling's soul, all the while as we watch her admirably hold it together long enough to hunt down the real villain of the piece, Buffalo Bill. 
And really, it's Bill who torments the audience's nightmares at the end of the day as we watch this depraved monster hunt down his next victim. With all those factors accounted for, Silence of the Lambs is just the perfect storm of a film and is well deserving of its legendary status. Christian's number two, The Ring. The true start to the J-horror boom came with Ringu, or better known as The Ring, in 1998. And while there was a pretty successful remake in the US, nothing in the J-horror genre is quite as unnerving and ultimately terrifying as Ringu, who set you down a path of you know pure depression and despair like no other horror film could. Instead of those usual jump scares that are you know used to pop the crowd, you find yourself watching a story unfold with horror very subtly creeping its way in, you know, throughout the background, without any music cues or violent quick edits, which in my opinion immersed me more into the film and is why Ringu was one of the first films to be, you know, considered for my 90s list. It's a film with an unsettling presentation that leaves you more or less feeling haunted in your day-to-day -day life after viewing it. And now for Damon and Christian's number one 90s horror film, Candyman. Do I know you? Be my victim. Be my victim. So Candyman's not only one of my favorite horror films of the 90s, it's one of my favorite horror films of all time. And part of that reason is because it still resonates today more than ever. In the aftermath of the horror boom of the 80s, the film managed to remind audiences just how terrifying the genre can still be by setting the high bar for all things horror. Its use of classic urban legends really tapped into fears we've experienced with modern folklore. It's those stories we've all heard whispered on the playground, passed down from generation to generation, brought to life, which makes it even more relatable. Bernard Rose's arresting visuals is both somehow gritty and gothic, and Tony Todd's performance finds the perfect balance between sympathetic and absolutely terrifying really echoing horror icons of the past like Lon Chaney and Boris Karloff. The film is unapologetically brutal, with Philip Glass's atmospheric score heightening the tension. And the choice to set in Cabrini Green underlines the subtext of race and class. This allows the boundaries of mythology to be pierced by cold reality. In my mind, it's just a shame that the follow-up sequels never came close to living up to the greatness of the original, because as a horror fan, I feel like Candyman belongs in the same sentence when mentioning legendary horror characters like Jason and Freddy. Nevertheless, Candyman is easily my favorite horror film of the 90s, and that's why, of course, it's number one on my list. So it's going to be a double number one for me as well, as Candyman is leagues apart as a horror film to just about every other pick on my list because it has baked in multiple layers of fear that can still resonate with today's audience. Tony Todd's striking performance as the Candyman is what made him a legendary symbol of death in horror films to come. I mean, the man can just look in your general direction and invoke fear, but as Damon said prior, this story gives layers to our hooked killer and brought to life the horrors of folklore. After watching our number one pick, you will be counting just how many times you say Candyman out loud. 
And now a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. Hey you, got bush? Well, you definitely do if you haven't tried the best products from our sponsor today, Manscaped. Taking control of your bush is important. These products are so good, you're going to be showing pride in your new bush-free yard. It's a fact that you'll have the best-kept nutsack on the cul-de-sac, so save big and be the most hygienic version of yourself by using our discount code 20NERDSHOW for 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. Listeners, you know I don't got bush because Manscaped helps keep my rocket raccoon high and tight. Whether you're looking to go bald like an eagle or just in need of a safe trim, Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game. Listeners, the grooming package I highly recommend is the Performance Package 4.0. That's because inside the package is the Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer is a bush's worst nightmare. This trimmer is designed to reduce grooming accidents and shave hair on loose skin thanks to its ceramic blades and advanced skin safe technology. No need for night vision goggles, this trimmer has a LED light to allow you to mow the lawn in the dark. It's basic landscaping. When you trim the hedges, the tree stands taller. The second best tool in the performance package is the Weed Whacker. This fine-tuned nose and ear hair trimmer will make sure your nasty nose pubes are under control. Instantly add some pep to your step with the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Spray-On Testy Toner. With a performance package purchase, you get two free gifts, a shed travel bag and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxers. They have a bunch of other products on their website to help you maximize your confidence and grooming game. So listeners get 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. Kate Bush may be trending at the moment, but your bush needs some help. That's right, so make sure you're running up that hill and get 20% off and free shipping at Manscaped.com by using our code 20NerdShow. It's time to level up your grooming game with the ultimate bushwhacking tools from Manscaped. Next the 2000s. This time we're talking our personal top five horror films of the 2000s, which is where I really began to start my journey into horror. But Damon, what made the 2000s a unique time for horror fans? The aughts was the start of another renaissance period of horror, with large variety of different trends making the genre a dominant force at the box office. Early on in the decade, we as a nation suffered a great tragedy with the events of 9-11. Grief, anxiety, and fear swept the country as for the first time in a long time, we felt vulnerable. As it often does, horror cinema mirrored the collective mood, and we saw the rise of colder, more violent films. Across the board throughout the genre, the element of home invasion became more of a predominant theme, tapping into that paranoia that we as a nation no longer felt safe. During this period, films like Eli Roth's Hostel and James Wan's Saw became hits. Many of these films started to be labeled by some lazy critics, as simply torture porn, with their argument being that the movies glamorized and focused on suffering and gore instead of story. This unfair generalization is much like the attacks that slasher films dealt with in the 80s, and each film should obviously be judged on their own merits. At times, art is meant to be uncomfortable, and just because it challenges your sensibilities doesn't mean you should overlook its nuances, but that's an argument for another time. 
Internationally, the J&K horror boom was happening and finally reached our shores with the American remake of Ringu. The Ring was a huge success at the box office, with Hollywood of course trying to cash in by remaking any Japanese or Korean horror title they could get their hands on to mix results. Another country, France, had their own influential horror movement happening, with a wave of transgressive films that challenged taboos known as the New French Extremity. But foreign films were the only movies that Hollywood was interested in giving the remake treatment to. Anything horror related with an ounce of name recognition and nostalgia attached was getting remade. It started with the successful reimagining of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Dawn of the Dead, and honestly, I don't think it ever truly ended. Now, remakes are nothing new to the genre, with Hammer most notably doing it with the Universal Monsters. But while I love the original Stepfather, it's no Dracula, so this phase started to wear a little thin to say the least. But speaking of the aforementioned Dawn of the Dead remake, just to really show you the scope of the absolute smorgasbord of horror we had in the aughts, I didn't even talk about the zombie craze or the slew of found footage movies that swept the decade. And even though of course you have to take the good with the bad, and a lot of these trends overstate their welcome because, you know, Hollywood likes to beat things into the ground, but one could argue this was an embarrassment of riches for horror fans. I mean, I remember pretty much going to the theater every weekend with friends to check out the newest genre offering. That's something you just couldn't do in the 90s. So needless to say, as a horror fan, the genre was off to an exciting start with the new millennium. All right, before we get started with the countdown, uh, some quick honorable mentions, and this is really what my top 10 would look like. Um, Inside Final Destination, The Orphanage, American Psycho, Shaun of the Dead, and Devil's Rejects. Christian, any honorable mentions this week? Yeah, I got a ton too, because uh, 2000s just pumped out movie after movie. Um, I definitely have to put Freddy vs. Jason. 28 Weeks Later, The Grudge, Slither, Ginger Snaps, Dog Soldiers, and Donnie Darko all definitely have to be mentioned and here. And now for the Amazing Nerd Show's top five horror films of the 2000s. Starting with Damon's number five, 28 Days Later. Mr. Bridges. Were you bitten? This is Dawn. I live four doors now. Were you bitten? Did any of the blood get in your mouth? Mark? So Danny Boyle helped reintroduce the world to the zombie subgenre with his own cinematically stylized take on what Romero pioneered decades earlier. Jim, awakening in a post-apocalyptic world, struggles to keep his humanity as he tries to survive a plague of rage ghouls. While not necessarily the typical Romero gore-fest, Boyle still manages to honor the director's vision by cranking up the adrenaline and intensity and deliver a film laced with well-established tropes and a dose of social commentary. 28 Days Later, like every good film in the genre should, gives us a reflection of where we were at as a society at the time. And come to think of it, the follow-up 28 months later is pretty fucking amazing also. Christian's number five, Shaun of the Dead. Take on, go to Mums, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! 
As we've seen in these horror month countdowns, not every film needs to be terrifying to be a classic, and Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead is one of the best horror comedies in history. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost are a duo for the ages as the two of them traverse what it would be like during the start of the zombie apocalypse. Shaun, you know, just wanting things to mull over, is doing his best as he slowly becomes a leader in saving his friends and family, and with the heightened film style of Edgar Wright, the film keeps an upbeat tempo and the laughs flowing from scene to scene. And if you're anything like me, you'll be quoting and watching this film for years to come. Damon's number four, The Ring. Is he still in the dark place? No. He set it free. You helped her? Yeah. Why did you do that? What's wrong, honey? You weren't supposed to help her. It's okay now. She's not gonna hurt you. She... Don't you understand, Rachel? She never sleeps. The American remake of The Ring is a tentpole-type film that exposed U.S. audiences to the Japanese brand of horror, and with that ushered in countless good and bad J-horror remakes that really owned the box office for the next couple years afterwards. And even now its influence is still felt in horror. From the dread-inducing imagery to the subversion of the typical Western ghost story ending that usually sees the sunrise as some tortured soul is free to the afterlife, not in the ring, no. The ring gave us the template for a much darker story that's still being used to this day. I mean, my god, the closet scene is one of the biggest jump scares I've ever experienced in a theater. It collectively scared the shit out of the entire audience in a way I don't think I've seen since. It's the kind of moment as a horror fan you never forget, and is definitely one of the reasons why The Ring is one of my favorite horror films of the decade. Christian's number four. Final destination. Play your hunt, Alex, if you think you can get away with it. But remember, the risk of cheating the plan, of disrespecting the design, could incite a fury that could terrorize even the Grimmauber. And you don't even want to fuck with that Mac Daddy. Ah yes, one of the films that traumatized me as a child and to this day has me looking around imagining death's design for me. But that's the kind of lasting impression Final Destination has on its audience. Growing up now, I've recognized some of the more ridiculous moments of this franchise as a whole, but it's still one of those movies that gets you thinking about how everything around you could kill you at any time. It's laced with 2000s cheese, but also creative and dynamic kills that has made for a lasting franchise. I mean, who else refuses to drive behind a log truck now? Because I know I'm not the only one. Damon's number three, Trick or Treat. You must really like Halloween. You mean Samhain? What? Samhain, also known as All Hallows Eve, also known as Halloween. Predating Christianity, the Celtic holiday was celebrated on the one night between autumn and winter when the barrier between the living and the dead was thinnest and often involved rituals that included human sacrifice. I like your eye patch. 
Now, this really shouldn't be much of a surprise to anyone who actually listens to the podcast on a regular basis, since I've professed my love for Michael Dotry's holiday horror classic many times at this point. Uh, Trick or Treat is a delightfully well-crafted anthology film that celebrates all things the season. In the film, Sam is the wicked patron saint of Halloween, and he makes sure the citizens of a small town are properly honoring its rituals. In four nonlinear yet tightly woven together tales of horror, Dotri manages to capture the mischievous spirit of the night. He keeps it fun and whimsical even as he shows us the terror that lurks beneath All Hallows' Eve. I mean, it's a real testament to the film's impressive rise to cult classic status that once October rolls around, it sits right next to Carpenter's original Halloween on many horror fans' must-watch lists. So if you haven't seen it yet, do yourself a favor and check it out before another Halloween passes us by. Christian's number three, The Mist. Yes, I know! It is true! But now we are being punished. The judgment is being brought down upon us. The fiends of hell, you see, they are let loose. And Star Wormwood blazes. And it is his fault. Yes, no. it is your fault. No! no. Oh, it is not my fault. fault. You, they did it. They stick in the eye of the Almighty. Yes, it is. No! Based on the Stephen King book of the same name, this small town grocery store becomes the tense, mysterious hellscape that kind of embodies the same feel of a zombie survival film, as not only are the monsters to fear, but the people around you as well. The fact that the monsters are really hidden for most of this film only adds to the tension, as you never quite know what's out there. I also feel like one of the few people that actually enjoyed Thomas Jane in most of his roles. So here in this one, I thought he did a great job in portraying this family man trying to keep his family alive, which of course led to a truly memorable ending that if you haven't seen is probably one of my favorite parts to actually get people to watch this movie and see the reaction to. So if you haven't checked it out, check out The Mist and let me know what you thought of this harrowing tale. Damon's number two, The Descent. Dead animals, hundreds of them. This is not good, guys. Can we get out of here? Which way? Come on. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? There's no breeze. It could be any one of these tunnels. Take your pick. Oh, oh fuck it. Hello! Please. Is there anybody there? Hello! Sarah is drowning in grief after suffering a devastating loss, so her friends decide to take her on a spelunking adventure with the hopes of giving her a moment of relief from her despair. What ensues is a claustrophobic nightmare of epic proportions, as we watch the group discover they're not alone in the caves as they're savagely hunted by a species of humanoid Nosferatu-like creatures. With this film, Neil Marshall gives us the ultimate tale of perseverance as we watch Sarah, literally in her darkest hour, choose to fight and survive against impossible odds. While the descent is violent and graphic, it's also just the perfect example of how the build suspense and tension through the expert use of elements like light and sounds. The film is just a powder keg of emotions as we watch Sarah tap into something primal as she attempts to make her escape. The descent is a terrifying yet strangely therapeutic experience that just checks all the right boxes and is the kind of film that horror fans won't soon forget. Christian's number two, Saw. 
There is only one key to open the device. It's in the stomach of your dead soulmate. Look around, Amanda. Know that I'm not lying. You better hurry up. Live or die. Make your choice. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you'll know that it's a family tradition of mine to see every Saw movie. It was a franchise that dominated October throughout the 2000s. Jigsaw slaughtered those who needed to learn life lessons in dastardly traps, and people ate it up at the box office. James Wan's first film in the gruesome franchise introduced us to Tobin Bell's iconic performance as Jigsaw, the horror vigilante that gets up and close with his victims. And in that first outing, we watched two of them tear themselves apart trying to get themselves free. It's a film that easily sucks the audience in by having you imagine what you would do trapped in a Jigsaw puzzle, while also giving you an interesting villain that subverts the usual idea of a victim. The first three films are horror month must watches for my house and i definitely think you should have been watching them already damon's number one the strangers why are you doing this to us because you're home Bar none, The Strangers is one of the best home invasion films ever produced. What makes it so effective is its nihilist approach to horror. The Strangers have no motive or purpose other than just terrorizing a randomly chosen couple until it's time for them to meet their grisly end. Brian Bertino's film is more about the time-tested ingredients of suspense and tension instead of gore and a high body count. As we watch this bleak game of cat and mouse really draw you in with the amazing use of shadows and sound. It's not necessarily about what you see, it's more about the overwhelming sense of dread that looms over the film. Bertino decides to forego spectacle for the choice of keeping the violence more grounded and real, making the film even more difficult to watch. And this is all heightened by the performance of Scott Speedman and Liv Tyler, whose torment resonates on a different level because they feel like fully formed characters, as we're dropped in the middle of them in emotional turmoil. This gives their characters depth without tons of exposition. So when we do get to that now iconic scene at the end of the film, and we hear the chilling explanation on why this couple is about to meet their end, quote unquote, because you were home, it makes it even more heartbreaking. With The Strangers, Bertino reminds us that death can always be the next knock we hear at the door and just how fleeting life can be. It taps into a fear in a way many films seldomly do, and that's what makes it an easy choice for my favorite horror film of the 2000s. Christian's number one, Exorcism of Emily Rose. Our Father, who art in heaven, I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.
A battle in the courtroom becomes a battle of faith in Scott Derrickson's Exorcism of Emily Rose. It tells the story of an exorcism gone wrong as the priest stands trial after failing to save Emily Rose, and the way it plays out is more of a backdrop to the trial's proceedings as we get the horrifying retelling throughout the case, which Jennifer Carpenter as Emily Rose puts on one of the best performances of a demon's prey since The Exorcist. Not that I'm saying that this film can hold a torch to the exorcist, but its unique take on the genre with strong performances is what makes the proceedings of this trial haunting as we watch it affect Laura Linney's character Aaron Brunner, who's trying to defend Tom Wilkinson's father more. From its subtle scares as Aaron Brunner gets haunted to its memorable exorcism, it was no wonder I woke up during the witching hour myself after watching the film for the first time. Even so, what's great about this movie is the way that it also makes you question the events of the exorcism the entire time as you wonder if she was actually possessed or needed medication like the prosecution lays out because that seems like the more logical answer but all wrapped up together it made for a fun take on the exorcism genre and one that belongs right here at the top of my horror month countdown next the 2010s. Damon, what made the 2010s stand out in horror? So in the 2010s, horror continued to thrive like it did in the previous decade. And while we watched some trends burn out, others carried over from the aughts and started to evolve. With remakes becoming a bit of a dirty word, we saw the rise of the requel, really Hollywood's way of having their cake and eating it too, both capitalizing on nostalgia for a series and resetting the table at the same time. But speaking of the mainstream, the 2010s was the decade of James Wan and horror fans were just living in it. After launching one of the biggest horror franchises a decade earlier with Saw, James Wan proved he still had the Midas touch by delivering us not one, but two new blockbuster genre series in Insidious and The Conjuring, the latter establishing its own haunted universe with successful spin-offs like The Nun and Annabelle, who both have their own sequels. The one thing that the 2010s really did solidify was James Wan is one of the most influential names in horror history. With the genre garnering more praise from critics and audiences more than ever before, we saw studios recognize the creative renaissance that carried over from the decade previously, as they started to be more willing to take risks and think outside of the box. With that, we also got a new generation of amazing artists wanting to carry the flag for the genre. Directors like Robert Eggers, Jordan Peele, and Ari Aster, to name a few, dived into the freedom and metaphorical nature of the medium. Art house, or quote-unquote elevated horror, became the buzzword of the day for critics. But of course, like all labels, this incredibly reductive term misses the point. And in a way, it feels like it diminishes horror as a whole. Like somehow the work of Craven, Carpenter, and Romero, and a slew of others haven't been quote-unquote elevating the genre by delivering compelling message-driven work in the decades prior. But regardless of what label you want to classify it under, horror in the 2010s was filled with some of the richest storytelling of any genre. And that's because it's a medium of entertainment, like any good art form, that is constantly redefining itself, stretching boundaries and tackling themes in ways that other genres would never dare. And here's to hoping that it continues to do so well into the 2020s. So before we move on to the countdown, some quick honorable mentions from me. Uh, the Kill List, 2015's Invitation, Midsummer, Insidious, Babadook, us it and get out christian do you have any honorable mentions yeah for my honorable mentions since you already stated like half the films i was going to say um i'm going to say annabelle creation and ouija origin of evil which were great sequels to their original films 
And now for the Amazing Nerd Show's top 5 horror films of the 2010s. Starting with Damon's number 5, Sinister. Exposed to the images we're especially vulnerable to Google's possession and or abduction. What if you destroyed them? Sorry, I, I don't follow. If you destroyed the images with a fire, what, what, what would happen then? What? Do you mean literally or in the stories? In the, in the stories. If an image was destroyed, then the gateway would be closed and Bagul would no longer have access to this world, right? Mr. Oswald, what kind of book are you writing? Exactly. So Sinister wasn't originally on my list a few years back when we counted down our favorite horror films of the decade. But something strange happened. We have the infamous quote-unquote scientific study that named Sinister the scariest film of all time. And even though I enjoyed the Scott Derrickson Helm film, I scoffed at the notion that it was somehow the scariest because obviously that's something completely subjective. But what the study did do was get me to revisit the movie and my appreciation for it did grow. The film is incredibly effective as we watch a true crime author's life spiral out of control after he discovers multiple recordings of a string of horrific murders. So much of the tension is wrapped up in us watching Ethan Hawke's reaction to these sadistic crimes that it's hard not to get engulfed by the terror as we witness everything unfold. Sinister has this strange hypnotic feel that's hard to break free of until the final frame. And while it might not be my pick for scariest movie of all time, it's still a damn good horror film that deserves recognition. Christian's number five, Don't Breathe. You can't do this to me. There's nothing a man cannot do once he accepts the fact that there is no God. No! In an era of remakes and soft reboots, 2016's Don't Breathe stood out as one of the more interesting new IP to come out for the horror genre. Taking on what should have been an easy robbery, Jay Levy's character Rocky gets in way over her head when the crew comes across the blind man Norman Nordstrom, as played by Stephen Lang, who for me was set up to be you know one of our next horror icons in this film. The sure amount of intensity you know felt when Norman is on the attack, along with Rocky and crew doing everything to stay as silent as they can created a thrilling experience that would have you know entire audiences holding their breath in fear. The quiet moments of this film just draw you right in and immerse you into this story that you know drops a wild ending on the viewer that you have to see for yourself. If only the sequel could have just carried the same momentum here as the first film. But unfortunately that just ended up being downright terrible. But still give Don't Breathe One a, a chance here. It was a great film and it definitely deserves to be on my top five list. Damon's number four, Train to Pusan. Train 
Train to Busan reinvigorated the zombie subgenre in a way that would make George Romero himself smile. This South Korean film takes a character-driven story about empathy and parenthood and blends it with balls-to-the-wall non-stop action. A workaholic father and his estranged daughter are trapped in the middle of a zombie outbreak on a train to Busan. This white-knuckling roller coaster of a film is as much about the importance of unconditional love and self-sacrifice as it is about the zombie apocalypse. Really honoring Romero's work, but at the same time delivering something uniquely of its own. You get beautifully shot, cinematic, action-packed sequences all held together with a strong emotional core. And that's what really makes this film a must-watch for young and old horror fans alike. Christian's number four, Get Out. How do you feel now? I can't move. You can't move. Why can't I move? You're paralyzed. Just like that day when you did nothing. You did nothing. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. <laughs> The directorial debut of Jordan Peele takes the sometimes uncomfortable feeling of being the only person of color in a room and just ramps it up with one of the absolute worst possible outcomes in this horrifying tale. Daniel Kulia's uh, performance is the driving force of this film as you watch him discover what's really going on in this neighborhood. He, like the unsettling feeling he's having, continues to sink and sink and sink. And while I will say the film isn't super scary because a lot of the edge of the movie is cooled off with some good humorous moments, there are still plenty of moments that live with me to this day. Like the chair scene, for instance, with Katherine Keener. It was a fantastic start to Peel's work in the horror genre that makes you look out for the next film he comes out with. Christian and Damon's number three, The Conjuring. Look what she made me do. Hey. Ed? Look what you made me do! James Wan reintroduced the world to the haunted house subgenre by reminding audiences, when done right, just how frightening these films can be. By no means did he reinvent the wheel, instead he used a stylized approach and keen sense on how to build dread to deliver an intense, compelling story about good versus evil. But with that being said, I would argue the secret in the sauce is really the Warrens, the characters based on the notable real-life ghost hunters. They're just the perfect protagonists for these type of tales, and the chemistry between Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga is undeniable. They're one of the main ingredients that helped spawn a Conjuring verse, making it one of the most successful horror franchises of all time. Well, 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 look at that. Conjuring is also my number three. I believe I've said this a couple times, to be honest, but the Conjuring was one of those movies I was really waiting for here. For years up until that point, I was wondering if anything would be able to really capture that 70s and 80s you know, horror feel, but with modern techniques, and James Wan absolutely delivered on that. The tale of Ed and Lorraine Warren also sets up plenty of great tales that you can tell. And with actors like Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga behind it to kill it every time, it's no wonder it's had such a lasting impression amongst horror fans. But The Conjuring 1 itself has been one of the best takes on the haunted haunted house genre in years and definitely deserves to be watched by you every horror month season. Damon's number two, It Follows. Oh, it's me. Dara? Yeah. Don't open the door. 
See? Everything's okay. It Follows is a movie about the anxiety of sexuality and STDs coming to life and literally trying to kill you. In this dark and twisted coming-of-age film, we see a group of friends deal with the ultimate consequences of their actions as they're relentlessly hunted and murdered by an unseen supernatural force after a sexual encounter. The film is a pulse-pounding allegory that taps into the aesthetics of horror icon John Carpenter with its cinematography and score. Writer-director David Robert Mitchell does an amazing job of putting us in the protagonist's shoes and asking, what would you be willing to do to survive? Christian's number two. The Lighthouse. What? 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 If you're looking for a simple tale of pure madness, then Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse is the one for you. What this film captured between Willem Dafoe and Robert Penson to this day just blows my mind. As you know, this film is 100% all about the performances. You're not here for jump scares or dramatic music cues, which there is plenty of great music in this, but you're here to see what's left of these two men after their sanity is washed away by the tides. If Pattinson as Batman wasn't enough to wash away the taste of Twilight, then this will. Pattinson shows you his infinite amount of range in this film. It's a true experience getting to watch Pattinson bounce off of an actor like William Dafoe, and one I say is an absolute must watch for psychological horror fans. Though, maybe you want to put on some subtitles, as William Dafoe really went in on that accent. And for Christian and Damon's number one, Hereditary. Dad, I don't like this. What's happening? Please stop. What's going stop. on? Mom! Please, please stop. What's Dad, happening? Why stop, is everyone please. scared? So, Hereditary is one of the most disturbing films I've seen in a long, long time. In fact, so much so that it's the film I've seen the least on this list. And that's honestly because I have to be in the right headspace to watch it, because it's the kind of movie that stays with you for days afterwards. We watch as the family unravels at the seams after a great tragedy occurs. This unnerving movie about possession and the occult is really a wolf in sheep's clothing though, because underneath lies a gut-wrenching family drama about how grief is all-consuming. Director Ari Aster is the kind of artist that feels dangerous. He has no qualms whatsoever about showing you something that feels out of bounds, and then lingering on it for maybe a moment too long. Toni Collette is an absolute force of nature in this film. Her performance is both captivating and primal. Because her emotions feel just so raw and real, it's hard not to watch. Hereditary is more than just a film, it's an experience that's not for the faint of heart. In a genre that fans have pretty much seen everything to this point, it still manages to challenge you and your sensibilities on multiple levels. 
And that's why it's easily my number one pick for horror film of the decade. Yeah, Hereditary just surpasses any expectations I had for a horror film and goes beyond just being a standout in the 2010s, as it is also my number one here on this list. Even with an opportunity to rethink our lists, nothing in horror has stuck with me the way that this has. Ari Aster's approach to the family's grief and suffering along with one of the best performances in horror ever by Tony Collette makes for one of the best unbearable recommendations I can give. Because really, I'm in the same boat as Damon here. I can't just pick up Ari Aster's work and watch it for fun. Even putting you know the clips in this show gives me pause as I'm reminded of the events of this film, which all plays out with an incredible, unnerving cinematography. Hereditary is an A-plus for The Amazing Nerd Show and deserves to be seen at least once if you haven't. Well, that does it for this week. That's right, and as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right, you can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some Amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. All right, make sure to join us next week as we talk all the latest news and rumors in nerd culture. And whatever's going on in the world of wrestling. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Mother. Merry Christmas, Mother.